0: Hey, Vince McMahon,
1: it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother.
0: Knock three times on the ceiling if you want the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Tony Orlando and Dawn for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Or if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone and a Wicked Good podcast. In this economy, both Raw Bone and Wicked Good, you got it. This is Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. Let me get rolling by inviting you to participate in our Facebook group. Uh, Lots of cool pictures, conversation, etc. If you go to Facebook and, and put in a search for Stick to Wrestling, it'll come right up. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has Don Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs. I want to thank Anthony Medak. I, mean, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He made a generous donation to Stick to Wrestling. And if you want to do that, just PayPal, Pro wrestling Archives at gmail.com. Anthony, I also want to thank you for the kind words. That was really cool of you. Thank you. And this week... We are doing the 1981 year-end
1: awards with Jeff Bowdren. Jeff, thanks for coming on. John, or as we call you over at uh, the old Breaking Cafe with Baudrin and Berry site, the Randall Pink Floyd of Nashua, New Hampshire. Yes, the greatest single athlete ever to come out of Nashua, New Hampshire. It's a pleasure to be here. I was not Randall Pink Floyd. I was the guy. I, I was Mitch. So you weren't the guy that smoked weed, went to concerts, and told the uh, the coach, hey, I'm not signing any sort of pledge letter. No. They made us sign
0: a pledge letter, and Sons they told us bitches. we weren't getting on the field until we signed the fucking pledge letter. That was ridiculous. That's when that bullshit was just starting. Did you still smoke weed during high school, though? I have never smoked weed in my life.
1: Yeah, okay, we're going to have to put you under a test there for a I'm telling the truth. I have never smoked. 1981 was a great year in the wrestling business. John, I'm ready to talk about it. What about you? We're going to talk about it, but I mean, my
0: sophomore year, pink Floyd was like my, um, but he, he like mentored me. I was
1: very lucky. Well, because John, unlike you on, uh, our particular podcast, we don't just <clears throat> stick to wrestling. I'm going to hit you with a few things, John. Uh Oh, are you ready to discuss 1981? Different genre. John, let's talk about the top 10 songs of 1981. Very quickly before we go to your list, tell me which of these songs. And, oh, you know, there's no bands from, you know, like the the punk rock clubs. There's no, uh, you know, uh, Billy and the Beaters, uh, their uh, their Czechoslovakian tour with the B-side that everyone loved. No.
0: Because the best song of 1981 was Holiday in Cambodia by the Dead Kennedys.
1: Of course, everyone. Everyone's fucking heard that song. I'm talking songs that people actually listen to, John. How about Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield? What do you think? I love that song. Jesse is a friend. By the way, Rick has his own show, Working Class Dog, on Sirius XM. Number nine, oh, who doesn't love the Go-Go's? Our lips are sealed. Were you a fan? I was not a big fan of the Go-Go's, and I'm
0: embarrassed. It took me so long to figure out that Belinda Carlisle was a babe. I had
1: not figured that out in 1981. I was a big Belinda fan going back to a great, great uh, documentary on the history of the Go-Go's that was on Showtime uh, uh, a few months back. Number eight, start me up by the stones. Not a huge fan. What about you? I, I love the <sighs> stones. I just don't like that song.
0: I'm not a big fan of that, that song. Um, But in 1981, the stones had me convinced that this was really going to be their last album and last tour. And I was trying to get out to Syracuse. That was the closest concert they had. I didn't make it, and they're still touring today, 40 years ago, 40
1: years later. Tattoo You, one of my favorite Rolling Stones, because I was in college, of course, and that's when everybody learns uh, their music appreciation. Number seven, Mike Tyson's favorite Phil Collins song, In the Air Tonight. Were you a fan? Uh, No, not really. Way too mellow for me. That whole album was way too mellow for me. Number
0: six, Journey, Don't Stop Believin'. I appreciate Journey a lot more now. They were probably my least favorite band in 1981.
1: Number five, good lord, how many times did they play this friggin' song on, whether it was, you know, like uh, the radio, MTV, whatever, physical by Olivia Newton-John. I love Olivia Newton-John, and John, I recently uh, read uh, something you wrote about uh, you telling your teacher how much you loved Olivia, but good lord, this video was so obnoxious. <laughs> it was. No, I didn't put that on the Stick to Wrestling
0: board, so I'll share it. There was a rumor going around that Olivia Newton-John wasn't into guys. and A I rumor! Was... A rumor. <laughs> and a teacher like we were talking about you know women we find attractive i think we were talking about movies and i was like oh my god olivia newton john she is so gorgeous and the teacher's like well i don't think she'd be interested in you and i'm like why how dare she's like, her how dare her <laughs> i'm like why and she says well i'm not sure if she's into men and i just stop and pause and i deadpan it I'm like now i like her even more and this lady was ready to puke it was so funny
1: so uh, wrapping up the list, number four, Rick James, The Super Freak. Were you a fan? I don't think I heard that until 1982, but I like the song. Okay, number three, Tainted Love by Soft Cell. Good Lord, any dance club you went into was playing Soft Cell's Tainted Love, John. I, I wouldn't know, but I, that strikes me as more 1982 as well. Maybe that I just don't remember was a one-hit correctly. wonder, but good Lord. I Man, they must have made some money off that song because that song was everywhere. Yep. Uh, wrapping it up. Don't You Want Me by Human League? What do you think? Uh, I mean, even though that fell under technically the new wave umbrella, I wasn't into it. Okay. And number one for the entire year of 1981, spitting on people from the stage, it's Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I love rock and roll. It took me too long to figure out what a babe Joan Jett was as well. She wore some uh, some pretty cool, sexy, slutty eyeliner. I like that. I definitely like that. Would you like? All right, to enough my, of that. Now let's get to the wrestling talk, John. No, I, I gotta tell my Joan Jet story. Oh, okay. Did I spit
0: spit on you? No, uh, I, I, I. Unfortunately for me, no. But I got dragged to a ZZ Top concert in 1983, and Joan Jet opened up, and these people would not stop booing, and it got louder and louder with each song. And Joan finally gets on the mic, and she's like, "Hey, why don't you guys shut up? Some people came here to listen to me." Well, a practical riot breaks out at the Worcester Centrum. I mean, they were throwing stuff, booing, you know, so loud. She couldn't perform. And she just grabs the mic and she yells, fuck you, except it was like 30 times longer than what I just did. It was like the loudest two words in human history. And she walked off. And from that day, she was my hero. I should read her book. Yeah.
1: I read uh, Kathy Valentine's book, uh, one of the uh, guitarists from the Go-Go's. Very good book. Passed it on to Barry Rose. Haven't heard hide nor hair of it since then.
0: Well, I mean, Barry's so hard to get a hold of.
1: That's true. He's very popular.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk 1981, 40 years ago, the year-end awards for 1981. Me and Jeff Bowdrin, who could be better at this? Nobody. Nobody. All right, let's start with a Wrestling Observer Newsletter Award, Most Embarrassing Wrestler. Actually, he did, Dave
1: didn't have the award in 1981, but he has
0: it now. Jeff, who did you think was the most embarrassing
1: wrestler in 1981? Well, since it's not on my list, you caught me by surprise with the first category, Mr. I uh, let's see, believe who... I sent that to you, sir. Uh, well, the, the list I'm looking on does not have Most Embarrassing Wrestler. Let me think real quick.
0: You know what? I'm 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 starting at the bottom and moving up. That's why you might not be saying it. Uh-huh.
1: because uh, I got the biggest shock of the year as my first category from 1981. Uh, okay. Anyway, let me try to think. Uh, 1981 <laughs> was that the year that they had? Uh, no, let's see that that guy, uh, the the seven foot five guy, T. John Thibodeau, or was that later in the 80s? Uh, that was 1985 when he gosh, went to world son- class. Son of a bitch. Well, you still had. Uh, yeah, Lou Albano had gotten to be pretty embarrassing by that point. You know. No, I, really, I th- I thought yeah. Albano was great in 1981. Well, but we I, I mean, for I, diverse opinions. I, I am not talking about Lou as an interview or as a manager. I'm talking about when they would put him in the ring. Oh God. Let me quantify that before everyone strokes out. Okay, that was pretty embarrassing. I'll give you that.
0: What was that guy, the guy in Florida in 1983 who came to the ring with a duck?
1: Oh, yes, that was uh, Big Daddy. Big Daddy. But that was in 81. That was like, yeah, you said that was a couple years after that. I, so I, I, actually, say, got to, I actually got to meet that guy at the courthouse in Fort Lauderdale. You he told had, me about that. I think he had like jury duty or something like that. And, yeah, of course, everything was Dusty's fault because he was obviously such an elite athlete that uh, would have. You know been the next uh you know kurt angle or something like that if uh only he had been given the choice he, he was yeah
0: hard. um i mean I'm, I'm really surprised florida would do something like that you know that was r- really out of place there and we know who i'm picking for
1: 1983. well you know, when you get to that award you, you don't need to have me on <laughs> but i might yeah all right my most embarrassing
0: wrestler was the Moondogs, and this literally happened. Um, we got the, the WWF show at midnight on Channel 9, and then that show was on Channel 56 in Boston two weeks later. So Boston ran two weeks behind. I had company up from New York, a couple of my cousins, and I knew the Moondogs when the Moondogs were going to be on, and I turned off wrestling. I'm like, let's go play baseball or something. I did not want them to know that I watched a product that had the Moondogs involved.
1: Uh, you did not want your uh, cousins to think that uh, these guys, who perhaps were some sort of uh, caveman-esque uh, type of gimmick, who carried bones to the ring, uh, that's not legitimate sport in their eyes. I don't recall seeing that in baseball, hockey, or basketball. No, and well, maybe something. hockey in the minor leagues, but <laughs> other than that, you're
0: right. They they do some weird stuff. Minor league hockey, so. All right, let's move on. Least favorite wrestler, Jeff. Who was your least favorite wrestler in 1981?
1: Uh, hmm. I will say by 1981, we were getting the uh, the WWF cards uh, down in Florida on the USA Network, and it was pretty obvious. I'm going to use a word that you might recognize from a great show, uh, John. Pretty, 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 pretty obvious that Pedro Morales was uh, was past his prime. Morales was good at his
0: role, but you're right. His his weight was kind of out of control. He was no longer a good wrestler, and you can't, imagine was pushed, you can't imagine why he would have been putting on weight.
1: What's <laughs> that? Can't imagine why Pedro would have been putting on weight. Um, Mine in 1981,
0: and I don't I don't think the no the Pro Wrestling Illustrated or the Wand didn't have this yet. Mine was George Steele. I mean, here's oh, a guy
1: yeah. uh, he he could win the ro- role uh, years consecutively. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, here's a guy who ate up main events at Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, etc., and this was right around the time I started going to live events, and just having him on was a a total waste
1: of a match, and again, a waste of a quality main event. I don't know if uh, a a guy that was still around but maybe not pushed to that level was, uh, you know, Ox Baker at a certain point just couldn't move anymore. And yet he was still being used in uh, different parts of the country. I mean obviously he wasn't on a national stage like in Madison square garden, but it, ox Baker was pretty bad too
0: ox baker in nineteen eighty one I, I I think I've told this story on the show i I dragged my friends to the to the drive through to see escape from New York, which was really good anyway, but just because ox Baker was in it,
1: call me snake <laughs> he
0: I was actually you were good, dead. Movie, yeah. Yeah, it was a good film. All right, Jeff, who was
1: your favorite wrestler in 1981? 1981, I would have been coming uh, out of one of my uh, periods where I wasn't watching wrestling so much. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't, uh, you know, because my, my uh, as discussed on Breaking k with Audren and Barry, my wrestling fandom ebbed and flowed, still does to this day. 1981, I began getting back into wrestling towards the mm, the end of the year because i started getting back into florida wrestling i of course still watch georgia hmm let me see well everybody loved piper when uh, piper was in georgia so uh you know that was that was the reason to turn on georgia wrestling for me piper was amazing early in his career right around this time
0: when he first went from portland to the mid-atlantic area and you know kind of from a mid-major wrestling promotion into being on wtbs and be you know being the United States champion in, in the mid-Atlantic area. My favorite wrestler in the WWF was Magnificent Morocco. My favorite wrestler just from the magazines was Ric Flair. And when I first saw him uh, in 1981, when TBS first got on cable, I mean, he was everything I imagined he'd be. He was a great talker, great worker, et cetera. So I finally
1: got to actually see my favorite wrestler, Ric Flair, and that that's my pick. So I'm going to say the controversial opinion in my book, Roddy Piper in Georgia and in the Mid-Atlantic was better than Roddy Piper and the WWF. Boom. There. I said it. I don't think there's any question. <laughs> I think Well, uh, the people that were, you know, that were raised on the WWF, of course, that's uh, that complete sacrilege. And, you know, people whose wrestling fandom started, you know, like 1984 and, you know. The whole, uh, you know, Hogan, Piper, uh, Piper and, and Snuka with the coconut across the head. But, oh, my God, the 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 verbal uh, – it's the first time we've ever used this on this show, I think – verbal intercourse between Roddy Piper and Bob Armstrong was just gold on Georgia. It really was. I
0: mean, I remember Piper interviewing the Armstrongs, and I saw it again recently, like two or three years ago. I'm like, this is pretty much the first episode of Piper's Pit.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, when, when he would sit there and say, oh, Brad, uh, it was a fine movie you did. He did it very well. Of course, I might have done it a little differently, probably would have been better. You know, he just had this subtle way of putting uh, down the guys that he was interviewing that was just absolutely brilliant. And he did it in his commentary as
0: well. It wasn't yes. over the top like you the word you used. It was subtle, and yeah. it was it,
1: it worked. It was perfect. No, absolutely. He was uh, right. the, the first great uh, heel-color commentator, I think.
0: Was he the first full-time heel commentator. I can't think of anyone before him who was, who was full-time.
1: No. Cause I think he did it before, uh, Jesse, uh, certainly before like Michael Hayes. I mean, there were guys that would stand in from time to time and, you know, uh, give their thoughts on a match, but I don't, you know, Piper was like such a regular on that show. And he was really the reason that, you know, because uh, not that Georgia had started to hit the skids yet, but even then when they were, you know, when it was still really good, He was the reason to turn in, as far as I was concerned. No, he was the best thing about the show, in my opinion.
0: Let me see. We have favorite wrestler. Mine was Ric Flair. Worst manager. Jeff, who was the worst manager in 1981 that you can think of?
1: Hmm. 1981. Oh, you put me on the spot here. Let me think. Uh, I'm kind of going through my promotions here. I was not a fan. I don't know if this might have been more 1982-ish. I was not a fan of Sonny King with a lollipop in his mouth. Uh, as the manager
0: uh you know what I, i'm like the only one who liked sonny king with the samoans and yeah that was 1982 in 1981 up until today i was going to go with jim kent i don't know if you remember oh yeah that.
1: no no in florida yeah with the uh the bounty hunters absolutely
0: yep even as a 16 year old i'm like this guy sucks and then as time went on i got to see his memphis work in 1981 and again he was especially comparing him to jimmy hart he was terrible
1: well, and, and that's today, the, that's the problem. You're comparing one of the all-time great runs as a manager to a, a guy that, you know, it's like uh, what do you call uh Jim Holiday that was uh managing the uh, Zambui Express. Uh, comparatively speaking to some of the guys that they had seen in Florida, he was horrible. Uh Jim Kent, you know, Barry Rose and I have discussed this on our show. Barry hated the uh stuff with Jim Kent, the Bounty Hunters, Tommy Gilbert, Coco Samoa. I loved it cuz it was a great mid-card feud. Barry hated it because they would put that program on the top of some of the towns around the state that were used to, let's just say, a higher standard in
0: Florida. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then today I came up with, how can I forget Gene Anderson in 1981? Gene Anderson was one of the worst wrestlers, uh, managers, excuse me, of all time. And he got a giant push in 81 uh, managing Jimmy Snookin and the Iron Sheik. So I'm going with Gene Anderson.
1: Gene Anderson with that, uh, God bless him. He had certain maladies, but he would sit there and be talking and he'd have that Twitch going on Yeah, and it was just like, uh, but I will say one of the great things that, uh, Gene was involved with, uh, not necessarily him doing it, but you know, you mentioned the iron chic and, and Greg Valentine and those guys, the baby face turned by flair, you know, when, when he's doing the voiceover on the angle where, where they turn on him and he's, you know, he's going to reach for the tag from Greg Valentine, who he had teamed with previously. And Greg turns his back, and Flair is doing the commentary, and he says, "Look at him!" And he says, "I go to reach out, and he—he's not there." And then they begin kicking me, and they're beating on me, and they're going, "Get up, American boy! Get up, American boy!" He goes, "David Crockett." They went to a picnic, and I was the roast. I always thought that was a great line,
0: and that was a great, great interview. And Ric Flair is sitting there going, and look at them. They're laughing at me. Yeah.
1: They're going, get up, American boy. Get up, American
0: boy. And it was so shocking when I read it in the magazines because Ric Flair and Greg Valentine, you know, in the storyline were as tight as could be since 1976. And Valentine just turns his back on his old buddy. Yep. Uh, let me see. So, okay, best manager of the year. Jeff, who do you got? I'm trying to see. I don't see who, who won it that year. Pro Wrestling Illustrated gave it to Captain Lou Albano. The Observer did not have the award yet.
1: Trying to think there wasn't anybody. Uh, I would probably say Jimmy Hart and Jimmy Memphis. Hart's my pick. Yeah, that's who I would say because yeah, 80 to 84, Jimmy Hart was absolutely golden and, and people that see Jimmy Hart, they remember him even as the manager of the Hart Foundation. He wasn't as good as he was in Memphis, but like, you know, when he got to where he was on Hogan's, you know, he was the The babyface manager, he had the megaphone. Oh, where to go, Huckster, where to go? Oh, my God, he was horrible. But the Jimmy Hart and Memphis that compared Jerry Lawler going out with an injury to a horse that had a broken leg that you needed to take a gun to and put him down. Oh, my God. that, That was just next level awesome.
0: And I believe that was the first time Jimmy spoke on Memphis television. I don't think he said a word as Jerry Lawler's heel manager before that.
1: Yeah. And if you're if you're not going with Jimmy Hart, I'm sure, you know, Heenan was doing something that was uh, that was great because uh, he was always good. But I just remember Jimmy Hart just being sort of next level, uh, like he just really hit a peak around that point.
0: If you've only seen Jimmy Hart in the WWF, he was way better in Memphis. And I heard a long time ago that they watered him down because they deliberately did not want him to outshine Bobby Heenan.
1: I don't know that he would do that, but I mean, it's a different place in time. You're talking about a, a promotion that, uh, you know, like uh, is very regionalized and, and stuff. You know, that, 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 uh interview that we've just discussed, apparently Jerry Lawler legitimately was pissed off. Yeah. That, that Jimmy Hart had said that. So, you know, and of course Memphis always known for sort of walking that fine line between, you know, cutting right to the bone. And that's the stuff that's, uh, you know, uh, it makes it so memorable.
0: It's funny the stuff you hear that, like, guys get offended by. I mean, Ric Flair supposedly was outraged that Terry Funk brought out a TBS employee in a blonde wig with a yellow streak down his back and calling him Rick R-I-C-K Flair, F-L-A-R-E. Like, supposedly Flair, like, was furious.
1: Well, we could probably do an entire episode on just how thin-skinned Ric Flair was during the—you know, the guy— Everybody, and I want to just clarify: I'm not saying it was not deserved, but this guy had smoke blown up his ass for 15 years about how he was the greatest of all time. And somebody does a skit like that, and he gets all you know bent out of shape about it. God, come on, Rick, get over yourself. It's just when I heard he was that way, and and you know, I know other people that will say that he is somebody that during his career required a certain amount of constant reinforcement. And I don't exactly understand why. Ah,
0: reading his book and I haven't read his book in like 15 years, but there was just a lot of insecurity there. Yeah.
1: Uh, You know, and whether I, you know, if you want to really break down uh, Rick psychologically, would it have anything to do with him being, you know, adopted? Uh, You know, it's not like he was adopted by horrible people. He was adopted by a doctor and his wife, for God's sakes. And, it's not like his life was really rough, and you know the way that uh, some people have to unfortunately be, uh, you know, brought up. But uh, yeah, he had a lot of insecurity. I, I, I would love to see a, a psychological report on Rick. <laughs> even even at by the his way, age. can I just can I just interrupt? I, I got to tell you yeah. a very big story. So the other night, I get a text from my niece's husband. Okay, so he says, "You're not going to believe it. We're at a out at a restaurant that's in a hotel. Uh, there's a bar here. Guess who's here?" And this is by the way, he lives in Jacksonville. And I said, I have no idea. Who is it? He goes, Rick flair is sitting here at the bar. And I go, Oh wow. Nice. And he goes, should I go up and talk to him? And I go, yeah, go up and say hi to him if you want. Well, whoa, what should I say? What's a good opening? I said, well, I'll offer to buy him a drink. And he goes, well, you know, uh, so, so he tells me later that he goes up to him and he says, Rick has six drinks in front of him. He was, must've been starting slow. And he says, he had six drinks in front of me can you believe that i said well uh, you know no offense i said i really believe that rick at this point is probably a functioning alcoholic so it's not a huge surprise to me to hear that but you know so he says yeah he goes up uh, i went up and he sent me a picture of him and rick that he posted in our group very nice photo and i said oh i'm very happy with you." so he sends me while this is going on he sends me a note and says i can't believe this is happening is this my life this is so incredible and then he throws me this bomb john he says you know i I mentioned your name to him, and I just said, I just started laughing. Like, really, really? Uh, I'm sure Rick, of course, would go, "Oh yeah, that guy. Of course, I know who he is." And and I'm like, "Does Rick have any idea who I am? Absolutely not." Did Rick kayfabe my nephew and say, "Of course, I know him." I have absolutely no doubt that he would do that because Flair's a worker, and I'm sure that's what he did. But anyway, I was happy for the kid. He had a nice run in with Rick Flair. I said, you know, I told him, honestly, I said, I've heard of people that have had good encounters with them. I've heard of people that have had bad encounters with them. I'm glad that yours was a good one. And he really did enjoy it.
0: Really? I, I have had nothing but two good encounters with Ric Flair and I, I haven't heard anything bad. Um, I mean, I was around Rick for a while with, I think it was, yeah, it was 1991, uh, John Arezzi's convention
1: in Queens. And Rick <laughs> Rick was a wild man to say the least. Well you know we had as we've discussed uh, uh, on our show before i I had dinner with Rick as part of a group of fans down in South Florida and it was not the world's greatest dinner compared to some of the others because the first thing Rick did when he sat down by the way this is a, a not just a hey let's have dinner with Rick this is a paid appearance by Rick okay yep. he sits down he goes we, we took him to a Brazilian steakhouse nice place and he sat down looked at his watch and goes. Okay, you guys got two hours. What do you got? And we were like, Really? Really? You know, like we're fucking paying you to be here and you're letting us know that we're on the clock. Okay, great. You know, and by the way, he was double dipping because he'd already been paid for an autograph appearance earlier in the day. So kind of left a sour taste in our mouth.
0: Uh, I I can't blame you for that, man. That's not cool. You have to at least act happy to be there.
1: Exactly. And, And honestly, if we were there and two hours later he had looked at his watch and gone, Hey, listen, you know, like, I got maybe like 15, 20 minutes left. You know, I I would have understood that. But really to sit down and before the dinner even starts, let us know, okay, you guys are on the clock. Go.
0: Yeah, that's lame. Yeah. All right. You know what
1: I think happened, Jeff?
0: I think I cut and paste a lot of stuff, and I sent it to you via Facebook Facebook instant message, and I bet the bottom got cut off because I I put too much in there. So I apologize.
1: Son of a bitch.
0: Yeah, I know, huh? All right. Biggest shock of the year. Pro, uh, The Observer had Tommy Rich winning the NWA title, which was a huge shock. Mine was when Bruno Sammartino gets on Channel 9 and announces that his last match is going to be against George the Animal Steel. I literally had to hold back tears.
1: Uh, Well, I think even with the benefit of... 40 years of hindsight, I think Rich winning the NWA title was a pretty huge shock. Now, I will say, you know, for people that weren't there in 1981, Tommy Rich was a huge deal for a while there, John. You know, uh, it wasn't like they just gave it to some, you know, guy, uh, uh, you know, they weren't given the title to Jungle Boy, for God's sakes. You know, Tommy Rich had been around for a few years, was incredibly over on a national stage and, you know, was a guy that. Could have a good match with a good opponent. He wasn't completely worthless. He hadn't yet started getting to the point where his uh, being a little bit, he'll be kind, a little bit out of shape, if you will, uh, particularly in the belly area, had begun to, uh, you know, get more and more apparent. But for what the NWA had stood for for a long time, which was having a great wrestler out there, and and of course, you know, people could say, well, Dusty Rhodes wasn't a great wrestler, but I mean, you know, he was a real power broker within the NWA. There's no question about that. So. You know, it was pretty stunning, even very short term to have Tommy Rich as the world champion.
0: I mean, time the NWA title switched hands back then, it was a shock. And it another huge shock. Deal. Yeah. Yeah. Was okay, Rick Flair is now the NWA champion. He's not the champion for a couple of weeks. He's the guy now.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's there's always been the, you know, the the triangle of uh of Flair, Rhodes, and DiBiase, that it was going to be switched among those three guys and then Ted did something that pissed off Barnett who bitched a muchnick who butched you know they they bitched back and forth to one another and Ted kind of got out of that whole equation and ended up going to work for Bill Watts for you know basically five years uh with a few breaks in between you know but uh I still think it would have been really interesting to see what sort of uh NWA champion given a bit of time with the belt that Ted DiBiase could have been
0: Well, a couple of thoughts. Number one, in 1981, Ted DiBiase was two years removed from a run in the WWF where he just wasn't a top guy. He was like the, I don't know, fourth or fifth baby face down the totem pole. To me, that worked against him. Number two, the story I heard, and it might just be all BS, but Robert Fuller was booking Georgia, and supposedly Fuller was told, hey, push DiBiase to the moon. And Dusty got in Fuller's ear about, you know, kind of sabotaging that push a little bit. And, you know, Ted's out there with with Stan Frazier as his partner, for Christ's sake. And, you know, that poured cold water on DiBiase and Dusty got the title.
1: Are you trying to tell me that Dusty Rhodes would use behind-the-scenes influence to uh, help his own cause? That's just stunning to me. That that is why that is why I use the word allegedly. <laughs> well, I can tell you that it's not alleged because I asked Ted about that directly at one of the dinners, and he said what happened was first of all, in Ted's view, uh, Robert Fuller was not doing a great job uh, as a booker in Atlanta, and whether that was because of Dusty putting the kibosh on some things, I don't know, but Ted went up to a show in St. Louis and said, "Hey, how are things going in Atlanta?" Uh, or I'm sorry, when he went up to St. Louis, Sam Muchnick said to Ted, how are things going in Atlanta? And he said, well, if you really must know, it's the drizzling shits. And uh, I guess Sam was not appreciative of that. (laughs) And sent word back to Jim Barnett that that's what Ted had said. Wow. And then go figure. That's weird. And
0: and it's Ted DiBiase, so I believe it. But, you know, I mean, if you don't want the answer, don't ask the question. Yeah, very much so. I don't know. Anyway. Best heel of 1981, and there were so many good ones. The Observer had Morocco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated had Ken Patera as its most hated wrestler, which is the same thing as Best Heel. Jeff, who who did you have on this? There were so many good choices.
1: Uh, I would say, and I know what your choice is going to be because I know you're more of a WWF guy than I was. I would have said either Patera or Michael Hayes. Our
0: pick is the same. I have Patera
1: as number one. Okay. Yeah. No, Patera, he was just fantastic. And, you know, like uh, the amazing thing is all things considered, as amazing a run as he had over, mm, I want to say like maybe a four or five year period, when he began to drop off, he really began to drop off. I mean, like I'm talking about in the ring is what I'm referring to specifically. Yeah, when he got when he got released
0: from prison, I mean, and the WWF gave him that huge push. I mean, he was pretty terrible
1: by then. But I'm talking about before then, even I, I thought he had really started to fall off a little bit.
0: Yeah, you know what? He was nowhere near as good in the AWA in like '83 or the WWF in '84 '85 as he was in Georgia. You're
1: right. Yeah, no, he was he was absolutely fantastic. His run in the WWF, like uh, late '70s, maybe even in the early '80s, and the Georgia stuff, the St. Louis stuff, he was really, really good.
0: And there were so many good heels uh, during this time. I mean, I, we could have easily gone with Sergeant Slaughter, Greg Valentine, Ryan oh, yeah. Piper, yeah. Terry Gordy. Michael Hayes had such a great first half of 1981 as a heel before they turned him that I mean you could consider him him for number 1 he was so good.
1: I'll tell you a funny Patera story. The last dinner that I was at uh was Patera uh in South Florida and I actually addressed this question with him about him having uh held titles in the different promotions and I said, you know, I said, "Jesus, I said you're you're uh in the WWF, you're in the in Georgia St. Louis, they, they're giving you belts and all these different promotions. You were like the only guy that I think that could handle that. Why was that? He looks at me, and and, and, that, uh, and that Ken Patera voice of his says to me, because I was good, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was a really funny answer.
0: Yeah, Patera, I've said it before, he could have been NWA, WWF, AWA champion, and just for whatever reason, it never happened, but he was that good. Do
1: you remember Uh, that I had Kent Patera cut a promo for your pro wrestling and whatever group? I I definitely did. That was like five years ago, and I still appreciate it. Yeah, crazy. All right. I'm still
0: wondering what happened, why Patera walked out of the Georgia promotion. I know it's probably as simple as he got pissed off about something, but that definitely... Seem to derail his career a
1: little bit. Uh, well, he may may or may not have some anger management issues. I'll just say that.
0: Uh, may or may not. Yeah, we but we love Ken Patero. That's okay. All right. Best baby face in 1982. So many good choices. Both The Observer and PWA had Tommy Rich as its best baby face slash uh, most popular. Jeff, do you have any other wrestlers that you would nominate or give that award to?
1: thinking Rich uh, would be the obvious answer. I don't really think that the precipitous downslide of Bob Backlund had begun uh, yet, so he would be a choice. Maybe Ricky Steamboat uh, still, but uh, yeah, I, I think probably Rich or Backlund. Would be, well, I was just thinking about in Memphis, but Lawler, I think that was the year that he was injured with a broken leg, So, uh, and the Von Erics really hadn't really emerged as to what they were like a year or two later. So yeah, I'll probably say rich or Bob back would be my choice.
0: I mean, I I'm going with, I mean, there were so many good candidates. Tommy rich is an excellent candidate. JYD was over like crazy in mid South second half of my 1981. Michael Hayes looked like the next really big thing as a baby face. Dusty was still in there. Um, Actually, Dusty, in your opinion, as a Florida guy, had Dusty started to slide in 1981? Oh, yeah. I, I okay.
1: Think, I think Dusty had uh, started uh, his slide right on after the last tangle in Tampa. Yeah. It, th- that's just my opinion. No, that makes I mean, you know, sense. But, uh, yeah, Michael Hayes is an interesting choice because <clears throat> I think if you want to talk about, you know, people talk about, like, Dusty Rhodes' hard times uh, interview being one of the great promos of all time, to me— one of the greatest promos of all time is Michael Hayes's babyface turn in Georgia when he comes out and he talks about how, uh, he wants to set a good example for his younger brother, Roy. And the, you know, do you remember that one? Oh, I, we yeah. named the show after it, uh, yeah. after Frumpy. And, 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 you know, like the, you know, uh, I talked to this old boy, Frumpy, and he says, Michael Hayes, you forgot where you came from. And then he starts to say, Gordon, the children. And this is so funny because 40 <laughs> years later, I'm not even kidding, John. I still use this quote. Gordon, the children, they need direction. They need direction. So, Roy, I'm talking to you out there in Pensacola, Florida, in the Little League Championship. You go out there, you do your best, and you win that title, and you bring it home, boy. Oh, my God. It was just
0: fucking amazing. It was. It was one of the great interviews of all time. I think we put it on the Facebook page. If you're listening to this and you're part of the Facebook group, please remind me to put up the, the article in one of the Florida newspapers about the last tangle in Tampa. It is absolutely brutal. Um, and but, I mean, my ultimate choice was Hulk Hogan. I mean, he was just doing fantastic things in the AWA. Yeah, That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, they tried to push him as a heel. It didn't work with Johnny Valley. as his manager. And, once again, you know he looked like the next really big thing, and well, it took about two or three years, but it happened
1: yeah no i mean he you could definitely uh especially when he got to the a w a and and uh they they finally did right by him at least by uh, by turning him and he was just uh, over to a i don't know if he's more over as a baby face than prime Vern, but as far as being like a pop culture uh phenomenon in the uh the a w a territory I don't think they'd ever submit, maybe like the crusher, but, uh, that would be the closest thing.
0: Yeah. And if I were dealing with Hulk Hogan, if I were booking Hulk Hogan, in 80 or 81, I, there's no way I would make him a baby face because he's too big, but obviously I'm wrong. He's, you know, one of the biggest names ever in wrestling as a baby face.
1: I just want all your uh, listeners uh, out there, John, to, uh remember that John just said he was wrong. Cause I know that's not something <clears throat> you hear very often. Go ahead.
0: It's not something that occurs very <laughs> often, Jeff. <laughs> but, but anyway, next category is most washed up wrestler. Of course there was, <laughs> no one gets called washed up in pro wrestling illustrated, but the observer had Peter, my as most washed up Peter was kind of out of the spotlight in 1981, so I'm not sure how that happened. Um, He he made one appearance at Madison Square Garden. As far as I know, everything else was Los Angeles and Hawaii. But, Jeff, who in 1981 did you look at and say, man, this guy's prime was way behind him?
1: Well, you know, I mentioned Morales uh, before. I'm trying to think. uh, I mean, you mentioned Stan Frazier, but Stan Frazier, it's not so much he was washed up. He was just a gimmick performer. Yeah. Uh Vern was still pushing himself like uh, you know, like there's no tomorrow. And although, I mean, let's be honest, he was he was still a guy that could handle himself in the ring. It was not a guy that you should really have as the uh the the focal point of your promotion at his age. I mean, I think he was
0: fifty-four, and yeah. we talked about that when Brad Breitzman was on. And you know, just putting the belt on a fifty-four-year-old who looked every minute of it was never a, a good idea. Mine, I'm gonna give you two because there are two different ways of looking at it. Bulldog Brower was not on TV, but he was still active in the WWF and you know, he was washed up two years before then. He oh was yeah. washed up in 79. Yeah. He was awful in 1979. And even as a 14 year old, I could see that. I'm like, who's this fat old guy. And here we are two years later and he's still making appearances, but it wasn't on TV. So I'm going to give it ultimately to Dominic DiNucci, who was a regular in the WWF. No, he did not get a big push, but he looked old and he looked like, you know, time had just way
1: passed him by. He should have well, been on TV. Well, and there were other guys in that you know, Baron Mikel Yeah, you know, I mean, let's be honest. And now that being said, I'm sure DiNucci and Sakluna and were, were guys that were regulars. So, you know, uh, Vince senior doing the guys a solid, uh, they were both guys that Bruno was, was friends with. So he's, He's hooking up Bruno's friends and giving them a job, letting them work the TV tapings, letting them work like, you know, some of the, you know, maybe the small towns they get like pushed towards the main event, the bigger shows they work, obviously they're lower to mid card and he's doing them a solid, uh, you know, I understand that, but let's not pretend that those guys were still relevant in any way. No, they, they weren't.
0: Uh, Danucci and Cicluna were basically mid-carders, uh, you know, jobbers to the stars on TV. But they were on TV almost every week, so I, I got to give them the nod. But your, your call on Vern Gagne was a good one. I mean, he was pretty past the finish line in 1981.
1: That's why I said it, because I'm absolutely brilliant.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me see. We're, we're sticking to being negative here. Worst feud of the year, 1981. Pro Wrestling Illustrated and The Observer did not have this award. I mean, Jeff, can you think of a really
1: bad feud from 1981? Hmm. Well, you know, we've talked about Jerry Lawler being hurt in Memphis, and the guy that they really gave the ball to was Paul Ellering. Yeah. And, oh, man, I never, I mean, the guy had a great physique. He's obviously an incredibly sharp guy, you know, outside the ring. And, you know, he, He definitely made lots of money for the road warriors financially and stuff like that with his business acumen. But Paul Ellering as a wrestler and and in the ring performer was horrible. Uh, There's just no getting around it. And, you know, like uh, I don't even need to bring up those completely, you know, just like what the hell interviews that he did in mid South later on, you know, like with the kids and that was just uh, like, you're like, what the hell were you doing there? And but. In Memphis, he was god-awful too, but they were put in a situation where they needed to have somebody quick. They got a guy with a great-looking physique and let Jimmy Hart talk for him. It was just that, unfortunately, he had to work in the ring. I mean, I never understood Paul
0: Paul Ellering. Like you said, he was a really smart guy, but it was like he couldn't figure out the wrestling business. I mean, I remember... 1983 and early 84, he had that endless feud with Ole Anderson when, you know, Ellering was just a manager, and really, it
1: was bad, but my worst feud... You remember, are- remember when Ole's big reveal on Georgia Wrestling was that Paul Ellering was from Melrose, Minnesota? Oh, yeah. And what Melrose, Minnesota was famous for? Yeah, and Gordon Soli told us, now, don't call him that. You know... Uh, do you want to tell the good folks who don't know what Melrose, Minnesota was famous for? Well, you know what? Wrestling really is a place where we sit
0: and learn because I did not know that Melrose, Minnesota was the Turkey
1: capital of the United States. Yes. And that of course led to everyone calling him the Melrose Turkey. This was the same basic formula as in Florida. When hustler Rip Rogers uh, had a Ms. Brenda Britton with him and Gordon said, please, whatever you do, folks, don't yell out "flea bag" at Brenda Britton because that just isn't nice. For you to call her a flea bag is just—it's just horrible. So please don't call her flea bag. But if you're <laughs> going to call her flea bag, I will remind—you know—and he just did that, and that's exactly what they did in Georgia with Paul Ellering, uh, you know, and the the Melrose Turkey. They did it with Rip Rogers in Georgia as
0: well uh, after Ole lost his WTBS time slot.
1: Oh yeah, that uh, that Georgia show is pretty brutal.
0: I'll say comparatively speaking. It was brutal on its own, man. I mean, when Jimmy Hart was there, it was watchable. And when Jimmy Hart New York Assassins. Yes, the New York Assassins feuding with Ole Anderson and the late Thunderbolt Patterson because you thought you think that they dug this guy up. He was so old and so bad. And he would
1: start his interviews with
0: Uh. Oohie.
1: And you, you sit there and you watch those interviews and you're like, really, that's that's what Dusty Rhodes uh, started out doing is like that guy. And and he's, you know, he, somehow he, he took, definitely took it to a different level. you know now I'm sure there's some guy out there uh, that's older than both of us that like saw Thunderbolt Patterson. And was like, oh, T-Bowl was brilliant. He was incredible. But, yeah, I never
0: got it. Not by night He was incredible. All right. In 1984, just not in the right way. I remember Jimmy Hart just dishing out the 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 best shoot comment of all time. He's looking at Ole and Thunderbolt and he's saying this is 1984, not 1954. Like, <laughs> ouch. Anyway, I went with Blackjack Mulligan versus Bobby Duncombe from mid, mid Atlantic. Um, I saw a little bit of it on TV. I mean, Mulligan, you know, he was hit and miss sometimes and his interviews weren't very good. Duncombe's knees were gone. These matches could not have been any good.
1: Well, blackjack, was completely awful in Florida after 1983, so I'm sure he wasn't much better. And it's really amazing. We talked about guys that took precipitous downfalls. Blackjack in the late 70s, everybody that I know that was into Mid-Atlantic just said he was incredible. But when he showed up in Florida, he was horrible, you know? I mean, yeah, everyone has their expiration date,
0: and Mulligan definitely had his. Like, I believe he was something else in the 70s, and I've heard it from enough people, but, you know, as time went on, and by the time he got to the WWF in 84, yeah, late 84, like, he wasn't even doing good interviews anymore.
1: Yeah, get Mama from the kitchen. Yep. Go get her. Bring her on. Got something to say.
0: All right. They didn't have an award for worst television announcer in either PWI or The Observer. And Jeff, really, I it, this is something positive. I can't think of anyone who was really bad in
1: 1981. No, I you know, I've said it before. I really like Vince as an as an announcer before, you know, he started, uh, you know, like going into uh, trying to take over the world but as a you know on the uh, the Madison Square Garden shows on the WWF TV shows in the 70s and into the early 80s i i always got a big kick out of events you know like uh, i thought he was did a, a fairly solid job
0: i thought the same thing i thought patterson was fine as his sidekick you know gordon Soly was still really good bob cottle was still really good uh, i mean who am i forgetting if i had to go with someone for the worst it would probably be Either Steve Stack's or Gene Goodson, but neither of those them were really bad.
1: Well, uh, where was Gene Goodson? Because I don't know that. World class. Okay, now uh, now Steve Stack, you're talking about from San Antonio, or when he's doing world class? San Antonio. Oh yeah, because he he was. But I'm, I'm thinking of Steve Stack in 1983. Welcome to the Junction in San Antonio, Texas. But you also have to remember that we did not have access probably in 1981. To uh, Ed Whalen in Calgary Oh that's right And
0: that that's the thing Like I'm sure whoever was doing Tomco Or whoever was doing you know Dick the Bruiser's TV Might have been really bad But you know there's not that was, much was, out there to judge
1: Was Sam Meneker still doing uh, Dick the Bruiser's show Probably and Meneker wasn't bad Yeah so alright I was just trying to throw out All the different names <laughs> Okay uh, and the guy from, What's the guy from Portland he was good too Uh
0: Frank Bonima, Yeah. That's the, you know, I can never remember his name because he did. He never did anything to put himself over, which is quite the compliment in the wrestling.
1: Oh, that's like, you know, it's like when you're a good uh, referee or official, when they don't know your name and they never see you, that means you're doing a good job, you know? All right. Not sticking to wrestling.
0: Today is Monday, December the 10th, uh, the 20th, excuse me. And there was a, uh, it's on Twitter, there was an umpire, baseball umpire, in Mexico, who apparently was so drunk, they had to just, like, get him off the field, the rest of the crew. Like, okay, go home, buddy. And as a result, Angel Hernandez was trending on Twitter. (laughs) That's funny. Okay, best television announcer. Uh, Gordon Soley got it in Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Excuse me, Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not have it. The observer went with Gordon solely. What's your pick,
1: Jeff? A lot of people thought that Gordon had begun to slide. Definitely mid eighties. I think he was still probably pretty great in the early part of the eighties. So uh, if you say Gordon, if you say uh, uh, Lance Russell, uh, I would have no problem with either of those two.
0: No, they were they're You know, they were good announcers in nineteen eighty-one, and I thought Gordon was the best. I mean, and plus he did both Florida and Georgia, so you got to give him a little extra credit for that. Oh, sure, absolutely. All right. Rookie of the Year, this is a tough one because we don't know who the real rookies were, who really started in 1981 or maybe even late 1980. The Observer didn't have anything. Pro Wrestling Illustrated had David Sammartino as Rookie of the Year. With Brad Rangans, Kurt Henning, and Ron Ritchie as the backups. David Sammartino, Jeff, I'm going to say something controversial. In 1981, it felt like he had a lot of potential.
1: That is very controversial.
0: <laughs> I mean, he's Bruno. Have you read kid. Bruno's How biography, by the
1: way? Huh? Have you read the Bruno biography by Sal Carrente? I have not. I actually read it, and I really enjoyed it. We actually had him on our podcast to tell some uh, stories. And, you know, it's amazing that uh, as in-depth and and this guy had access to Bruno up towards the end of his life, and, like, you know, Bruno was not uncomfortable talking about almost everything. And, By the way, for those of you who just, you know, kind of think, I kind of sort of know about what happened to Bruno when he was growing up. Oh, my God. Just like the stuff that he and his family went through with the Nazis is just absolutely horrifying. What a tribute to him and his mom uh, and his family. The survival is just amazing. But the one thing that they really kind of danced around was even, you know, later in his life, Bruno did not want to address the situation with his son. Oh, wow yeah it's just uh, it was still you know uh, a subject that you just didn't want to didn't want to broach with him, you know and because the uh and, and now i should say whether or not he did discuss that with sal and sal just chose not to put it in the book because you know maybe bruno said hey listen i'll tell you what the story is but i'd really rather not have it you know out there for public consumption i can appreciate and respect that but uh yeah it's just uh, a really you know a very sad situation because you'd like to think you know and I'm not judging anybody. Please don't think that. But, you know, like when you're told, hey, look, the end is near. Maybe you come and you make your peace with your father and, uh, you know, or your father makes peace with you. And you guys can uh, uh, not leave with with uh, things left unsaid. You know what I mean, John?
0: I do. And I would respect the situation if it was it really was something that Bruno did not discuss with Sal. If it, if he doesn't want to talk about it, if he's uncomfortable. I mean, I, I
1: respect that. That's it. No, Absolutely. Uh, that would not have been my choice for rookie of the year though. Uh, if it, I was the list you sent me, uh, had uh, Brad Armstrong and I would have gone Brad Armstrong or Kurt Hennig. Kurt Hennig was
0: not that good when he first started. Like a lot of people think, oh yeah, right out of the gate. Kurt Hennig was, was a great wrestler. He wasn't.
1: Well, I, I'm just going to say, he no, got I'll, better. I'll use your term. You could see the potential that was there. You saw it in David San Martino, I could see it in Kurt Hennig. Okay, I agree with that. And yeah, if Brad Armstrong
0: was eligible, and I think he should have been, then he would be my clear pick for rookie of the year. I mean, Armstrong, he was always really good in the ring. He's been called underrated so much that I kinda I don't think he was underrated. I think he's properly rated as a guy who was really good in the ring, but he just didn't have the it factor.
1: Uh, you know, the the incredible thing about that is anybody that I've ever talked to about Brad that knew him will tell you that Brad in the dressing room was absolutely hilarious. He had a great personality, was a prankster, not, not like mean spirited, you know, like to have a good rib with the boys and stuff like that. Very funny guy, good to be with on road trips. And he would stand in front of the camera and the red light would come on. And it was like, um, like one of those things, you know, if you could have taken Bob's gift of gab and given it to Brad, you would have had a, a guy that could have been NWA world champion. Jeff, I would like you
0: to plug one of your products. The one that involves one Brad Watt.
1: Well, uh, I will say that, uh, my book, they call me Booker by Jeff Bowdern, uh, discusses a, uh, time when I was writing for the wrestling observer Yearbook, or actually the wrestling observer newsletter for nine months, I did a, uh, Basically, I laid out a TV show and uh, did the pay-per-views and all that in uh, WCW. Now, you have to remember, John, not that I need to remind you, but WCW was completely horrible in uh, late 90 into early and into mid-91. Uh, it collapsed. Uh, yeah, it was just awful. And so like, I basically sat down and said, I can write better storylines than these guys are doing. And that's what I did for nine months and it was it was a
0: really good 9 months i'm not you know just blowing smoke jeff i i looked forward to reading that every week i was disappointed when it got preempted due to whatever and that
1: i was really was the damn McMahon steroid trial vincent and screwing me it, it, no it was the not the steroids trial it was the gulf war
0: uh let me think steroid trial was 95 i believe Oh, wait a minute, but the steroid controversy was 92, was. but still. Anyway, so something preempted it. That's all I know. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was the
1: Gulf War and the WWF screwing around with Meltzer the way they were. But no, uh, what John referenced uh, when he said Brad Watts was what I did in one of my storylines was that I had Brad Armstrong turn heel against his father, and he joined up i uh, I'll just say a faction that was led by uh, a heel cowboy, Bill Watts, which I think would have been lots of fun, by the way. And he uh, he ended up being adopted by Bill Watts. And he changed his name from Brad Armstrong to uh, to Brad Watts. And you mentioned something about, oh, my God, this must be Jim Ross saying, oh, my
0: God, I can't imagine what's going through the head of Bob Armstrong in, in Marietta, Georgia. Yeah, the, it was uh, it made it very realistic. But anyway, it was it was a good book. I recommend it. All right. Most underrated. The Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not do this one. The observer went with Buzz Sawyer. Any thoughts on wrestlers who were underrated in 1981 from you, Jeff?
1: Yeah, Buzz Sawyer was a guy that was really we had seen him in Florida. As I said, he was he was feuding with Coco Samoa. And even then, uh now, let me let me just preface this by saying we have discussed Buzz Sawyer on our own podcast. Great wrestler, did incredible moves in the ring, incredible talent, horrible human being. Okay, Uh, let me just say, because everything I've heard about Buzz Sawyer is that he was pretty much a horrible human being. He He would bully people, take advantage of guys in the ring. Allegedly, I shouldn't say allegedly, I was told that he basically stole money from Terry Allen when he was training Terry Allen. But in the ring at that point, the stuff that he was doing with Coco Samoa, that was when we first saw Buzz Sawyer doing that power slam of his where he would throw the guy and it would crisscross maybe three times, and then he would pick the guy up. Buzz Sawyer's power slam. John was off the charts. It really was.
0: I saw Buzz Sawyer in Florida in 1981. Now, I didn't know what work rate was, okay? I could tell, like, what a really great match was and what a really bad match was, and 95% of it was all in the middle. But Buzz Sawyer against Jack Briscoe on Florida Championship Wrestling, I remember watching it as it aired and being like, oh, my God, that was a great match.
1: Yeah, he was crazy good, brought crazy intensity to the ring. Uh, you know, underrated. Uh, the, the Jim Duggan thing in Mid-South was just off the charts. You know, uh, have you ever seen the match with he and uh, Jim Duggan? It's from, uh, I think, like New Orleans, where they, cha- they go back to the towards behind the scenes or in the hallways. And uh, it was like I think it was a match that Brad, uh, not Brad, um, Joel Watts. I'm still thinking about Brad Watts. That Joel Watts had taped to put on the Power Pro show, and uh, he was videotaping a lot of stuff that was like arena footage. And what was great about it was when they get back to the to the back and they're trying to be separated, and they start cursing at one another. Have you ever seen that match? I haven't. No, um, not that I can remember. I think I want to say November, like 11th of 1985. It's out there and it's a great brawl, fantastic brawl. But the best part of it is when they get to the back and they're being separated and they just start letting, you know, as they say, uh, letting the expletives fly, as Kramer said on Seinfeld one time, like they just start cursing a blue street, like you mf you know, you piece of human, ch-! and they're just, screaming at one another at the top of their lungs and it is hilarious but it's like you're not laughing like hey this is supposed to be a skit you know they it's like so intense and they're both both got blood coming down their faces and they're trying to get it's terrific stuff i i highly recommend it and that was one of my top 100 of the 80s by the way okay i i'm going to share a memory
0: from like 30 years ago i went to an indie show and the wrestlers were cussing at each other which is something i'd never seen before but I would think that, like, wow, it makes it look realistic. But to me, it made, it just came across as trashy. And I'm not, well, you know, super country club about, you know, cussing. I mean, we, we all did it in the 90s. And like I said, it just made it, to me, it made things look cheap.
1: Well, let me ask you, because this is a discussion that I've had with Barry on our show. What do you think when guys on AEW curse? Do you think it's, ah, it's no big deal? Do you think they do it too much, not enough, just right? What do you think?
0: I'm I'm against it and I'm I'm against it on pro wrestling shows. And I'll tell you why, because the other sports don't do it, or at least you don't hear them doing it. Yeah.
1: I uh, honestly, if it's something that is done extremely, I mean like really, really rarely. And when I say cursing, like if I, you know, if it's somebody like I'm going to kick your ass, that to me is, is fine. But, you know, when the guy could say, this is, this is effing bullshit. That to me is like, you know, there, there's something that you could be saying instead of that, that you're just saying that to get cheap heat. Cause you want to get the, you know, the, the 18 year old guys in the audience to go, woohoo, he cursed. You know, I, I think you're uh, kind of, uh, kind of missing the boat when you do that.
0: Yeah. If you go back in time to what were the, the period we're talking 1981, if you have a baby face get so mad that he uses a a bad bad word on television, and it gets bleeped out. You're kind of like, wow, is he mad? He's you know he completely has lost control. He's going to kill his opponent. But if it's done constantly, I, I don't think it enhances the product.
1: No, it, it it loses it. You know, it's it's you have to leave a certain amount to uh, the imagination of the listener or the fan watching it. And if you begin to use it too much, and that's why yeah. I reference AEW because you know it's lost its meaning when every week, and I'm not saying they do it every week, but they do it often enough where I've noticed where that's one of the complaints that I have is that when you do it so often where you just become kind of numb to it, Mm -hmm. it loses its effectiveness.
0: Yeah. Using bad words is like using blood in wrestling. If you use them too much, it's no good. But anyway, that's a very fair point. Okay. That's part one of our conversation with Jeff Bowdrin regarding the year end awards of 1981. This is coming out on Christmas Eve day of 2021. So if you celebrate Christmas, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas or whatever you celebrate, I want to wish you happy holidays. Thank you, Jeff Bowdrin, for being the guest. He'll be back next week. I want to thank everyone for listening. And I want to thank our, our producer, Luke Kippelman for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This
1: concludes our podcast day.